folks. Thanks for tuning in to season two of Food for Thought. On today's episode, we're speaking with David Ziskind, Director of Engineering at Black & Veatch. Black & Veatch Next Gen Ag Group is helping companies bring new food, beverage, and agricultural technologies to life with an emphasis on sustainability and scaling up. We're going to tap into David's expertise on all things manufacturing strategy, breaking down building out in-house manufacturing capacity versus utilizing an outsourced contract manufacturing model for bringing CPG products to market. If you're a CPG founder looking to scale your product to a broader market or a leader within an established food company, this episode is for you. Let's dive in. So David, where does Food for Thought find you today? Hey Mike, good, uh, good question. So quite literally here in my uh, home office, you know, with, uh, with the kids home from school and, and all that going on. Um, but on, on the serious side, so, uh, you know, working with, uh, Black and Veatch's Next Gen Ag, um, group, where we're really focused on what the future of food and beverage looks like and how to help sustainably feed our growing world population. Um, so that's really, that's really my passion and my focus these days. And where's home for you, David? So home, I'm here in nice Atlanta, Georgia, um, Went to, uh, went to Georgia Tech right here in Atlanta and uh, just really, uh, really love the city. Perfect. Well, I'm really excited to have you on, on Food for Thought as you're an expert on manufacturing strategy. And I think this is a very pertinent topic in the world today of food as, you know, brand and product development often garner much of the spotlight online. But as any solid food executive knows, Manufacturing, distribution, and logistics is what drives the bus for any successful food production business. You know, often maybe the less sexy side, um, but arguably the most important in terms of being able to deliver uh, a quality end product and with margins that are sufficient to allow a business to grow. So really excited to dive into, uh, into this world with you today. So maybe tell us a little bit more about what, when you, when you say the next gen ag division, what does that encompass? Sure. So our next gen ag team is really focused on um, what the future of food is. So uh, our tagline is better food, better planet. We're looking at how, how do we help improve the world's food system? You know, does it look like um, innovation, um, you know, from a, from an ag tech standpoint? Um, you know, what, what does that really mean? Seeing a lot in terms of alternative proteins, uh, controlled environment, agriculture, Thing, things like that that we really feel are, um, you know, the future, future of our society for a number of reasons, um, you know, to, to help feed our growing world population, but also to address the sustainability aspect and making sure, you know, we're, uh, we're leaving our planet and if, if not a better place, at least not a, not a worse place for our children. So some background for those tuning in, I watched a presentation that David gave at the Protein Directory's Alt-Dairy Conference uh, earlier this year and was amazed with his knowledge and depth in terms of manufacturing strategy. And in that uh, presentation you gave David, there was a slide where, you know, sort of framing the topic of manufacturing strategy. What is it and how do you how do you sort of bring this to the forefront for food companies of all scales? Um, and, you know, there were some headlines that you mentioned about, you know, Danone was making a move to bring a lot of manufacturing in-house. 
General Mills, on the other hand, was bringing on additional outsource manufacturing partners. Um, there was another one about um, sort of a legal spat or PR spat that Beyond Meat had with an ex-co-packer. It sort of encompasses the, you know, a lot of these areas. But when someone comes to you and, and is in the food industry and wants to you know, better understand manufacturing strategy, how do you sort of frame that from a business context? Sure. So I think there are a lot of good questions there to, uh, to address and look at. And Mike, I'm, I'm glad some of those headlines uh, resonated with you because it's, uh, you know, as you alluded to earlier, right, manufacturing and supply chain and all that, you know, it's not the, uh, not the most exciting thing that a lot of people think about. Um, but especially, I think, as we've seen uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, it's just become so critical um, you know, the, our food system is just something that people assume is there and assume that works. And, uh, you know, we hope to, and I hope to uh, educate people and, and help, um, you know, help people understand what the underlying concepts are and what the underlying issues are. Uh, so specific to, uh, I think, when we, uh, we met up at the Alt Dairy Conference, um, you know, looking at manufacturing strategy, one of the key areas I brought up is the question of, do you make your product in-house or do you outsource and do you go under a contract manufacturing model? Um, a, a lot of good questions, a lot of good things to think about there. Uh, and there's not, I wouldn't say there's one thing that really says, hey, you must go this way or you must go that way. Um, but what I've found is especially you know, especially um, for, for a startup or someone who's focused on a new technology, you're very focused on that technology and maybe not thinking of what it looks like to scale up and what are some of the implications there. So I, I do like to talk about that manufacturing strategy piece of which, which way do you go? What makes sense? And in some cases, maybe it's even a hybrid approach. For sure. So for those, let's, let's lay the groundwork. So option one being in-house production, either owning uh, a facility, leasing a facility, and then operating the manufacturing or option two being contract manufacturing. And one good point that you brought up is that contract manufacturing can be an all-encompassing solution or a hybrid model where you might create the product or manufacture it yourself but utilize a contract packaging relationship uh, because you don't necessarily have the specialized packaging infrastructure, or it could also be vice versa. Um, you know, I, I thought that was a, an, an important distinction that you brought up as it doesn't always have to be an all-in-one solution. That's right. Absolutely. It's not a, uh, you know, it's not a cut and dry and it's not a, Hey, we always have to go this way or we can only go that way. Um, you know, certainly contract manufacturing, is, as you mentioned, um, you know, there, there are some considerations, some, uh, you know, things really to consider. I don't necessarily call them pros and cons. It's more just consideration because every, everyone's different and every company's needs are different. Um, but I especially like to look at, you know, for example, on the contract manufacturing side, just like you said, you can split that up. So is it, um, you know, maybe you've, your company has some intellectual property wrapped up in an ingredient or the way something specific is produced. Maybe that gets produced in-house and contract man manufacturer finishes it. Maybe it's uh, the other way around with some ingredients. Maybe it has to do 
um, you know, with just the packing side, so just the packaging side. Um, so certainly things to look at there. But on the in-house production side, you know, some some folks think about it as, hey, well, you know, that's very capital intensive because I have to own my own facility. Well, that's certainly one approach. There's also the consideration of, of leasing, of having a facility that, uh, that you operate, that someone else operates. And it's, uh, it's an interesting strategy, I think, that's gotten a little bit more uh, interest, especially recently as, as we're seeing more and more companies pursue a... Uh, you know, a capital light or an asset light approach. In, in your work with food companies, how have you seen the transition? Um, you know, it's one thing if you're an incumbent food company that's been around for 50 years and has a lot of infrastructure and ultimately if they maintain 100% in-house manufacturing or how do they actually go about maybe splitting off 50% of that versus a company that has sort of no sunk costs in terms of manufacturing strategy and they're starting from zero, you know, they might be well capitalized or they might have to go and raise capital. Um, but, you know, manufacturing, it is a long lead item. It's not something where you want it, you know, tomorrow or next week. And all of a sudden, this is something that's, you know, years, two years, five years in terms of the complexity of some of these facilities. Sure. One, one of the things I, I encourage people to think about and the example that I use is let's say you're bringing a new product to market. You've got, well, a, a number of challenges, but even just thinking on the uh, on the launch success um, from the manufacturing side, you've really got these two competing um, issues or challenges that could happen. You could have a, let's say you go to launch a new product and maybe it doesn't take off in the marketplace. Now you've got this, as you referred to, you know, sunk cost, especially if it's highly specialized machinery. Um, you know, you've got this you know, fairly high sunk capital cost. On the other side, and what I like to point out is let's say you go a different approach, whether it's contract manufacturing or, you know, uh, preparing limited production in-house and the product takes off and the demand is out there um, and you can't satisfy the demand. You've sort of got the opposite problem, you know, leaving it to a situation where maybe a competitor could come in uh, and take some of that market share for that uh, demand that you can't can't meet. Uh, so it's really those two two competing challenges and how to balance them. For sure. So maybe you can share some other considerations uh, for folks looking at in-house production. Um, you've already touched on there will be a higher upfront capital expenditure, um, but maybe you can talk about. Um, flexibility in terms of, you know, your ability to prioritize your own products versus others, or, you know, you kind of mentioned keeping some IP and trade secrets in-house. Um, can you expand on those a little bit? And if there are others you'd like to share? Sure. So in terms of the in-house approach, uh, as you mentioned, there's that upfront capital expenditure, which, um, you know, maybe I should revise that and say potential upfront capital, right? Because there, there are different financing models and approaches um, that are now out there in the marketplace where, you know, a company may not have to come up with, you know, 100% of that capital cost in cash, right? Um, certainly a number of approaches to take, including, uh, you know, even seeing some interesting approaches where 
you know, the manufacturer may not own the facility, but they own the equipment or, um, you know, some, something like that. So I would say certainly capital is a consideration. Um, one other thing uh, that I like to look at is the flexibility for directional shifts. So let's say you've, you know, invested in a lot of equipment to go a certain way or package in a certain uh, manner, and then that shifts. Um, generally, you're going to have some limited flexibility there. Let's say you've tooled and set up to go um, using the COVID-19 pandemic again. You know, let's say you've planned on uh, a lot of your business in food service and you've tooled that way, and all of a sudden you ha have a shift to retail. Um, you know, what does that mean? How can you do that? Um, you know, is, is your facility set up to do both? Have you been focusing one way? How do you get the new equipment in there to, to go the other way? Uh, so that's certainly something to consider. Um, there's also the question of capacity. So going back to my example of, let's say you're, you know, bring, bringing out a new product, right? Um, well, what, what's your capacity to, to grow that? Maybe that takes off with that um, exponential growth and you've got to really, um, really scale up very quickly. You know, do you have long lead equipment? What does that look like? your production space, things like that. Also in-house, uh, you know, you're, you've effectively got to be a, a manufacturing and operations expert or hire that, um, you know, hire that expertise in management in-house. So, uh, you know, you're producing your own product, but now you've got to worry about manufacturing, operations, maintenance, all the concerns that come in there. Um, Another consideration for the in-house is uh, you do have the benefit of having your intellectual or prop intellectual property or trade secrets being maintained in-house. Um, so, you know, there have been a few examples in the news recently where there's been a, been a dispute between a, uh, a manufacturer or a product owner and their contract manufacturer over that intellectual property and trade secret. So, uh, just some something to consider. And again, one of those examples that I use of, hey, is there a way to split up this process? Perhaps the, um, you know, very um, uh, um, intellectual property intensive or, or those trade secrets are kept in-house where you can manufacture that portion of it in your facility and then ship out product in bulk to a, uh, a contract manufacturer or a co-packer to finish. Um, also in-house, you do have control over uh, several variables that you might not have as tight a control of with a contract manufacturer. Being in-house, you've really got that, I call it total control over product quality. Um, there are of course ways to mitigate that with a contract manufacturer as well, but I, I think it's a consideration to, uh, to think about. And then one last point is, uh, control over your production schedule. So if you're working with a contract manufacturer, of course, you've got a contract in place, they need to run X amount of product or a certain amount of time, whatever that might be. But when you're in house, you've got that total flexibility. Let's say, you know, you need to make a decision to, uh, to change your product mix. That's something that can be done by your company on the fly, as opposed to maybe if you've got a contract manufacturer, especially who's working with other 
uh, other companies and other brands, you may not have as much of that uh, scheduled flexibility as you would in-house. Yeah, I think that last point is particularly important as, you know, everyone wants to be treated like they're a company's number one client. But at the end of the day, a lot of that's going to come down to, to dollars and cents and, you know, sort of the, the Pareto principle of 80% of your revenue coming from 20% of your, your clientele. And if you're not in that 20%, you know, you might get continually bumped, but you might have a retailer saying we need a, we, you know, we need this hundred thousand units of a product and, and it can get you into a tight spot. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all risk and reward. Um, on episode one of Food for Thought uh, with Nick Saltarelli at Midday Squares, he said something that I thought was brilliant. He said, never outsource your core competency. And, you know, Midday Squares is a functional chocolate uh, bar manufacturer based in Montreal. And when they started out, they, I think, interviewed or met with, I think it was 26 or 27 different contract manufacturers who all tried to kind of push them into how their equipment was, was geared into a product format um, that fit their eye, but not midday squares when they wanted to be different. And so this forced them to go down a path of building their own facility and all of the challenges that came with that. Um, but, you know, through their hard work and, and you know, uh, Nick kind of goes through the whole story of it and it's a fascinating story. Uh, but they ultimately they brought manufacturing in house and while it was challenging, it allowed them to stay true to how they wanted their product to be. Whereas when they went to the contract manufacturers, you know, they said, well, you're, it's going to have to be a bar that looks exactly like all the other clients that we have. And, and MDS's whole point was we don't want to be like every other company. So I guess it's one of those things as a food company, you have to decide, are you doing more of a me too type product or what you doing? truly revolutionary and to your point maybe you do the revolutionary point or piece of manufacturing in-house and then you know you don't give away that secret sauce but then the, another company will finish it and package it for you yeah i i think that's a really really great point mike and, and certainly a, a very insightful um observation there um and I, I could really argue and discuss that both ways right so you know, you say never outsource your core competency. And I'd also say something to the extent of, you know, you don't, you don't want to do everything or, or stray too far away from your core competency. So, um, you know, again, maybe your focus is on, do you, do you want to be an ingredient company? Do you want to be a technology company? Do you want to be a manufacturer? You know, what, what is your vision for your company? What, what are you trying to do? Um, and maybe if it's, you know, maybe if you're focused highly on the technology side, it may not make sense for you to run your own facility, right? Um, if that's not in the long-term plans, or if you're looking at a licensing model or a, an ingredient model or something like that, you know, it, it may not make sense to, uh, to own and operate your own facility. So it, it really depends. Um, but then again, just like you said, on the other side, to maintain that control and really have that control throughout the entire process, there of course is something gained by having that in-house. So uh, both, both sides of the coin there. Yeah, for sure. So flipping the script, and if we kind of focus now more on the contract manufacturing considerations. So, so one thing would be, you know, longer term, you'd have a higher unit cost than if you brought it in-house. However, from a overall business perspective, you're gonna have far fewer fixed costs in, in that you're not gonna have you know, um, 
you know, payments on a mortgage or lease payments for your facility. You're not going to have an operations team, which typically speaking is a large number of workers, um, certain things that will allow you to ultimately bring your unit costs down. Um, but your cost structure is very fixed. And as you pointed out during COVID, you know, that's bit some companies where, um, you know, they had to retool from food service to retail. They're geared for one thing um, versus a company that maybe didn't have as many fixed costs and was able to pivot a little bit quicker. Um, so, you know, that's a really key consideration that you brought up. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I should, um, you know, I should, should put a little disclaimer through some of these uh, observations and, um, and things that I'm saying, you know, not, not all of them are absolute, right? And not all of them apply to everyone, but, uh, you know, I just view it as things to consider, things to think about, things to, uh, you know, really apply to, uh, to your own company and figure out what, what makes the most sense for, for your specific situation. Definitely. So one, one point that I really like that you've, you've brought up is, or a question I should say is, can you train an outside manufacturer? And while that seems uh, on the surface obvious, I think it really depends on how intricate and complex the product is that you're creating. But I think it's really key because to your point, if, if you're doing that production in-house, you are going to incessantly care and have full control over that product quality. But if you are client 19 of 50 at a large-scale food manufacturer, contract manufacturer, their, their quality might be to spec, but it's just not quite where, where you want it to be. And so I think understanding how willing a contract manufacturer is to work with you um, is a really fundamental question to ask them as you, as you brought up. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, in fairness, look, there, there are a lot of great contract manufacturers out there who care, um, you know, very much about every single product that goes out their door in terms of quality. It doesn't matter whose it is. Um, but still there, there's that, uh, you know, that, that thing in the back of your mind, right. You know, no one, no one cares as much about your own product as you do. Um, there are certainly things that can be done to, uh, mitigate and, and address that, you know, whether it's, um, having one of your company employees, uh, with a contract manufacturer on a, on a regular basis from a quality standpoint and for inspection, that's one, uh, one option. Um, the, the training piece is certainly interesting when you think about, okay, so maybe you have a process that, you know, mix, mix these three ingredients together, you know, for this amount of time with this amount of, um, you know, this ratio or whatnot. Okay. That's probably pretty simple. You know, can't, uh, can't, can't really mess that up. Right. But maybe there's something that requires some hand ads or requires some, um, uh, some other, adjustments, um, or maybe it's a complicated manufacturing process or involves some uh, fine tuning, uh, you know, that might be a little more complicated to do with a contract manufacturer as opposed to your own personnel. Definitely. What would some other considerations be for uh, folks running food companies be that are looking at a contract manufacturing model? Sure. So I, I think some other things to consider uh, one of them being is I consider it greater flexibility in production and volume. Um, you know, maybe you need to, maybe you want to flex to my earlier example. Maybe you want to go from uh, food service to retail. Uh, it's possible that contract manufacturer 
has both of those capabilities right there in house. And it could be a simple, could, could even be if, if the stars align as simple as a, a phone call and, and uh, some quick adjustments and shift format there. Uh, so that's certainly an option. Uh, the other thing, that flexibility in terms of volume, again, depending on what, um, what capability uh, and other contracts that that contract manufacturer has, potentially they can help um, really increase that volume. You know, maybe you need um, 1.2 times what you're currently producing, and maybe that's something they can crank up by uh, adding a shift, by increasing speed, running an additional day, what, whatever it might be, um, or, or potentially even having more um, more equipment, right, and some other flexible manufacturers they could they could move around. So generally, I think there's a little more flexibility there um, in, in terms of type of production and volume. But I'll also flip flip the coin there to my point about schedule. So just like that might work as an uh, for you in a particular aspect, it could also be a situation where maybe that contract manufacturer has that request from someone else and uh, is looking to delay your production for other uh, higher priority products. So, uh, you know, both, again, both, both sides of the coin, both things to consider. Definitely. Um, maybe the last point and, and not to beat it to death, but I think it's a really important one is talking about contractual governance of quality control. Is that something that you've, you've seen sort of early on in contracts in terms of, you know, both companies obviously have to agree to specs, but have you seen any situations where expectations down the line really get out of, out of alignment? As I think, you know, this is probably something that happens um, more often than we think, but it's, it's, it's tricky because it's a, it's a very symbiotic relationship that, you know, the food company really requires that food manu contract manufacturer. And depending on how much of their portfolio they take up, might you know uh, influence how willing they are to to bend or to do an, another run at their own expense? Um, what have you kind of seen in that realm? I think really just a few things to think about and consider is um, you know as we talk about that uh, as, as we call it contractual government governance. You know what what's in place from a quality standpoint? What are those uh, tolerances and thresholds? What happens if something's not in spec? How far out of spec um, you know, can it be? Things like that. Um, I, I also consider, um, you know, maybe let's think about the worst case. What happens if there's a, um, a food safety issue or a recall that takes place? Uh, you know, probably who, who's going to take the PR hit, right? It's probably the company whose name is on the package um, and maybe not necessarily the contract manufacturer. Again, you know, not, not certainly not saying that that uh, contract manufacturers don't care about these things. It's just something to consider. Again, to that worst case, what happens? What happens then? Because then certainly you're looking at costs that extend well beyond the uh, just replace the product. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, so maybe let's shift gears to to something a little bit more specific, and that being the plant-based protein food sector. So this is obviously a very hot, uh, hot button industry right now, lots of movement on a societal level, 
of the shift towards plant-based ingredients. Um, the alt-dairy industry is also, you know, very prevalent right now and, and trying to chip away at market share from the traditional dairy sector. Um, what have you seen in terms of from the manufacturing side of maybe just sort of framing, framing this as oftentimes, you know, folks, they'll see products on a shelf and, you know, they obviously just assume to those are not in food that these companies manufacture, but are there companies that you've seen that have done a really great job of absorbing a lot of this demand and, and doing that sort of unsexy work of bringing in some of these proprietary technologies and processing equipment? Um, and even just some of maybe the, the advice you've given to companies who've come to you and said, we want to create this plant-based meat analog, or maybe it's a plant-based milk. And what are the factors we should consider? Um, can you kind of just frame what you're seeing in plant-based now and whether you've seen that in previous times with, you know, whether it was um, animal processing or meat processing facilities or dairy or potato chip lines, things like that? Mike, it, it's certainly an interesting time in the, uh, in the overall industry and seeing what's going on in the, the plant-based and alternative protein space. And as you said, it, it's that society, the society shift, right? So it's not, uh, it's not necessarily someone just, tr you know, bringing out a new product and seeing how the market responds. You're seeing a lot of push from, uh, you know, look at the sustainability angle, look at the uh, uh, animal welfare angle. There are a lot of different um, things that are really, really coming together to push and, and propel this forward. Um, you know, I, I won't even take a guess at what the current uh, projected growth of the industry is just because it seems like, you know, every other month I see a, I see a headline with a number that seems to uh, continue to increase. Um, and even seeing certain, uh, uh, certain countries who are making commitments to their, their food security and food future. Uh, I look at, uh, for example, Singapore, who I believe theirs is uh, uh, something like 30 by 30. So they're looking to, uh, I think it's something like manufacture 30% of their um, food needs in country by 2030. Uh, so these these are you know pretty uh, pre pretty broad shifts, uh, particularly for the um, particularly for the food industry. I think it's been really neat to see, especially over the past few years, uh, many larger multinational corporations really putting a focus on the research and development of these new products. So not just looking at, um, you know, how do I manufacture this different, but how do I, how do I come up with a totally new product? Um, you know, you look back, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago and some of the, um, some of the meat analog products that came out. I mean, look, if, if you had one, you certainly weren't uh, uh, confusing it with meat, right? You know, it was, it, <laughs> yeah. it was an alternative, um, you know, certainly something that, um, uh, was acceptable and and good, um, but now you've seen this different, really a, a shift in demand and focus. You know, you're hearing about um, flexitarians, people who are looking at uh, both options, people who are looking at cutting out some meat, maybe not all meat, and you're also seeing a focus on, you know, now it's not nece not necessarily just appealing to vegans and vegetarians, but Maybe it's someone who really enjoys meat, doesn't want to give that up, but 
for whatever reason is interested in changing, whether it's from the animal welfare angle, sustainability angle, uh, or whatnot, you know, so you've, you've got this, uh, the consumer market is now demanding um, these alternative products, but they also want them to taste good. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a shifting landscape. Um, I'm curious, so whether this is sort of a black and beach specific question or just in general of engaging a engineering design construction firm, if you're a, you know, call it a 50 to $100 million food business, what level of investment would be required for them to sort of get the state of play on factors that they would need to consider, whether it's keeping their current facility and, and renovating it, let's say, to increase production versus building a new greenfield facility, let's say, versus a mixture of in-house and outsource manufacturing? Is there sort of a consulting arm within your division or how would a company um, go about, you know, engaging experts like yourselves to help quantify some of these business variables that they're evaluating? Sure. So um, I just wanted to take a moment to talk, uh, talk through at least our typical process, but really start out by something I like to emphasize um, is really um, what I say is that iterating um, early, iterating often uh, will ultimately save you money. When we look at this, uh, you know, you look at the project lifecycle and influence curve, uh, I really encourage, I mean, upfront during that feasibility and conceptual design, you know, you probably want to spend a little bit of time and money to explore different options, go through different approaches, figure out what makes sense, get all the stakeholders aligned. That's a big one, right? Getting everyone uh, within your organization agreed to, hey, this is the approach we want to take. Here's how we want to go about it. Here's the timeline we're agreeing upon. Um, but our, our typical process looks like starting with the, uh, whether you want to call it strategy, master planning, feasibility stage, that's where things are starting to come together. Um, move on to a conceptual design where we start defining, hey, what does the process look like? What, what's the preliminary equipment list look like? You know, broad capital costs. What are we talking on schedule? What is our automation strategy? Things like that. Then moving into a, a detailed design phase where you start going into the detailed specifics, you know, even thinking about what does the, the bid strategy look like, um, going through utility sizing, refining your capital costs, uh, doing de detailed engineering, um, even perhaps starting some of the, uh, the long lead equipment before going into the procurement, final design stage, uh, construction and execution. So a, a lot of things to think about, a lot of things to consider. Um, so back, back to your question of where to start, right? That, that's a lot to bite off. You got to start somewhere. Um, and it's really starting with that, that feasibility and that conceptual design. Um, it's about establishing what your company has um, outlined in terms of what your process looks like. We have some clients who have a very well-defined process flow details. You know, they, uh, you know, know that, hey, this is, this is exactly what we want. How do we implement this? We have others, um, especially as looking to scale up from, say, from a, a lab to a pilot plant of, 
you know, knowing, hey, this is how we do things today. Now, how do we do this at um, 10x or 100x or whatever that might be? Um, but yeah, it's, it's going through that initial planning, understanding those costs, what are involved. Um, you know, I, I, hate to, uh, I hate to throw a specific time or a specific number at what some of those uh, early costs are without looking at the, the specifics of the project. Um, but when you look at the broader costs down the line, certainly they are much less than um, you know, the construction and the execution cost. And, and certainly spending that money upfront, I strongly believe will, um, uh, will pay dividends downstream. Definitely. I have, I have three final questions. I want to be respectful of your time, David. Um, and maybe this is feeding off the last question, but what would you say is a good barometer for the Adage? If you're considering building your own facility, it typically costs blank times as much and takes blank time as long as you think it will. That, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, I, I always hate to throw a number out there because uh, as, as soon as you throw that number out, it's, uh, it's wrong. But I'll, uh, I'll be a little funny here and say, uh, you know, facility is going to cost, you know, more than you think and take, take longer to build than you think it will. Um, <laughs> so just, good just, answer. Just things to consider. Yeah. Um, where can listeners find more about the manufacturing services um, and thought leadership that you've shared in the space of manufacturing strategy? Sure. So certainly from a personal side, would welcome to, uh, to connect with anyone on LinkedIn uh, to, uh, to learn more from the thought leadership side, to exchange some ideas, even start um, bouncing some thoughts off each other. So Certainly, uh, certainly enjoy engaging on LinkedIn. And then from the Black and Veatch side, um, would also encourage uh, looking at our website, which is bv.com slash nextgenag. Okay, great. Um, and my final question, David, you're someone who lives and breathes the manufacturing of food um, and agriculture all day, every day. What's your favorite way to reconnect with food on a personal level? Hmm. Good. Uh, good. Good question there, Mike. You're uh, getting the uh, the gears in my head spinning here. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, something I really enjoy is um, just, just going back to basics. Just doing some gardening. Um, you know, really be able to grow something. Um, you know, from the seed, grow it yourself, bring it up. Um, you know, into, uh, uh, into a plant that's um, producing food is just, to me, it, it seems so simple, but it just, um, it, it's fascinating at the same time. That's great. I, th I think that's a common theme uh, during COVID is, is getting back to basics and, and people having more time to uh, connect with the food and understand where it's coming from. I think pre-COVID, it was just, you know, people just automatically assume that there's going to be food on the shelves. And, uh, you know, it's really opened people's eyes. So, uh, David, I appreciate you sharing your, your time and your, and your thoughts with us on Food for Thought. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, food entrepreneurs and executives that will, will take a lot from this. So thank you.